Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, good morning and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and I'm standing in for Pam for the next two weeks while she's off in France with Stephen, who I've been following on Instagram, so I know exactly what they're up to, exploring France. Looks fantastic. Now, as usual, on a Sunday morning, there's a lot of hort- horticultural smarts hanging around Smith Street, Collingwood, and this morning is no exception. Uh, in the studio today, we've got our favourite ex English political advisor turned horticulturalist, Virginia Hayward, and a woman whose Banksia passion will put Celia Rossa to shame, Chloe Foster <laughs> from the Royal Botanic Gardens Cranbourne Friends Group. Welcome, guys. She's really talking <laughs> Right. I want the whole list of Banksias, Chloe. <laughs> I don't know, but I can start with Banksia spinulosa, which is what I brought in today. Oh, brilliant. Well, they, they are all starting to uh, do their thing, aren't they? They really are. They're a beautiful, they're a beautiful plant. So I bought in, yeah, Banksia spinulosa today. I don't think it's any special particular variety, the mm-hmm. one that's growing in my garden. It's a mm-hmm. bit old now, but it's got so many flowers on it at the moment, and they're just beautiful when they flower, and they flower for ages. Mm. So I find in my garden that they, one part of it, the highest part of it, is full of Banksias, mm. but whenever I've planted them in the other bits, they just turn up their toes and say, <laughs> No thanks. They do that sometimes. Mm. Trust me, nuts, and you just don't know why. Mm. I, I'm pretty sure it's all about the drainage. Being in the Proteaceae family, yep. they do love good drainage. My garden it's has much too much drainage. Does it really? I, if, I just would love a bog. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do have a lake, don't you? Yes, but I'm on top of a hill. Every scrap. I mean, the one good thing about being on top of the hill, the other thing that rolls off is the frost. Mm-hmm. Because it snowed at Donna Buang last oh, week. Oh, and, and yeah. well, I know Mount Buller got down to minus one. But Donna doesn't usually, I mean, it snows once or twice a year. To, so already to have a nice big drop on Donna's extraordinary. Yeah. Does it but ever snow at your place? It has. It's never sat. Yeah. It's, I think, twice since I've been there. I've been there about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Both times I've missed it. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Well, I mean, I should just say, just getting back to the Banksia spinulosa, I'm following Chloe's footsteps. Chloe used to work at Karanga, <laughs> native nursery, and I've started working there part-time, which is absolutely thrilling for someone who obviously loves native plants so much. And, um, yeah, so one of the, there's a lot of the um, cultivars from yeah. the spinulosa, aren't there? There's lot, so many. Yeah, a lot of the smaller ones, like the birthday candles and... Um, coastal cushion, coastal cushion, cherry candles, yeah, coastal gold in that sort of small shrub range, and you know they're just fabulous little plants. Yeah, really good container plants. Yes, as, as well as in the ground, Sue yeah. has got one really tall one, which I think came from Karanga. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's called Red Rover or something like that, oh, and it's right. it's got long, thin, very orangey. Flowers. I've seen Red Rover come into Karang, but I've never seen it in a garden or I've never seen it flower either. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And her husband wanted to take it out because it was on the driveway. <laughs> Didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, do you have any of the Integrifolia uh, varieties? Yes, although yeah. I, I haven't got... I've got one tall one in and coming on, which isn't in the highest part of the garden. Mm-hmm. But up there I've got, oh, and they're just different, uh, you know, I see something I don't know and I just grab it. Yeah. And I've got about five up there. Yeah. And I'm in the process of moving things out that are, cra- you know, that are 
in their way mm. because they win. Mm, mm. The, the Integra Folia vary a lot too. I mean, there's the ground cover roller coaster that everyone's that you know a lot of people have in the garden, and mm. then you know there's the tree form which grows along Port Phillip Bay and up the east coast. Yeah, so yeah. And and I think that's, that seems to be the hardiest variety. I've run, run yeah. a few nurseries around the country just trying to get a sense of what Banksias do well where. And Integrafolia certainly, you know, won, won the gold medal for, mm. for hardiness around the place. And, yes, any of the, um, the cultivars that arise from that, I think, um, would be the way to go if you've got that slightly heavier soil. Yeah. Well, my soil's heavy. Mm-hmm. But, but not, obviously still but not well wet. draining. Mm. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Mm. Because for a long time I thought we've got really heavy clay soil with rocks through it. And for a long time I just made the assumption that it was not well draining just because it was clay. And I thought, oh, I better do the test. Mm. And uh, so I did my uh, drainage test, dug a, dug a 50 centimetre hole, um, filled it with water, left it overnight and then came back and filled it the next day and watched it and how quickly it dropped. And it was a pretty good drainage, surprisingly. And my soil, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't dug it. Last time I dug it was Thursday, mm. and on Thursday I had to get the pickaxe out, so I thought, nope, not digging. Yep. I wanted to plant a tree, mm-hmm. didn't do it. Just too hard, still no, dry. Hard. It's been so dry the last couple. We always talk about weather on this. I know. Well, what show, else is there? Well, what else? Yeah, <laughs> you, you have to. It's all part and parcel of it. And, but, but also, I, I had, in two days, I had four inches of rain. Mm. Which is extraordinary. Did you get four inches of four rain? Four inches in two days. Oh, wow. So well, I'm assuming I'm going to be able to dig when I next try. Yeah, well, oh, we I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> we had about 20, 23, centi- oh, 23 centimetres, I wish. 23 <laughs> <laughs> to be washed away. 23 mil over Friday and Saturday, which was terrific. Mm. But yeah. I hopped on the um, Bureau of Meteorology website just at the end of every month. They give you the update of what's happened in the month. And um, I thought I'd just check out and see if what we were all feeling was actually the case. And um, basically they've said the mean and maximum temperatures uh, for April across Victoria were the second warmest on record. Mm. Uh, below average rainfall. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Uh, Drier since 1997, which was the start of the millennium drought. Right. And and many areas, including East Gippsland, had the lowest rainfall on record, which is a bit scary. Uh, Monbulk, up near you, had uh, the wettest, uh, was the wettest in the Greater Melbourne area with 42 mil, and the wettest um, in the state was Mount Buller with 153 for the month. So still it's still not much. It's not a lot, is it, really, for, for autumn? No, so particularly um, when you tell people to plant in yeah. autumn. Well, that's what I'm trying to do, and I can't. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can plant small things, but even those, you know, like um, Tessalas is having a bulb sale, and I'm a complete sucker for bulbs. I particularly love any bulb that's dormant in summer, so I've got this area I don't have to worry about. Mm. And so I went down and bought too many bulbs yesterday <laughs> and I and I actually now there's a story yesterday I did dig yesterday and it was dry and I had to get the li- I've got a little pickaxe because I've found that I've given myself tennis elbow with the big <laughs> oh pickaxe no. you need a crowbar I don't go anywhere <laughs> yeah. in the garden without a big crowbar I drag <laughs> it behind me yes yeah. well that's what my pickaxe is and I've got this little pickaxe so I'm sitting on the ground with the pickaxe <laughs> saying pick 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 and and oh, got, but 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 now I add other soil. Mm. If I'm planting it this, I either add sort of some potting mix or yesterday I was putting in old sheep 
manure, just mm-hmm. something to, to make the soil a bit more friable. Yeah. And, and what bulbs are you planting? Um, mainly miniature daffodils mm-hmm. and a few ixias. I've got, I've got that blue ixia. I've got the wild version and the peacock one that you mm-hmm. see around a lot, and I love the ixias. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they go okay just straight into your soil? Yeah. That's bizarre, isn't it? You actually just reminded me. I bought some um, tulip bulbs, and I've got to remember where they are. They're <laughs> probably in the fridge. <laughs> no, they're not in the fridge. I don't know where I put them. I've got them at the at Mifkis. In oh, another cool area of the house. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> but I have. I do. When I lived in Britain, we used to easily grow daffodils just in the in the grass. Mm. I can't do it here. I planted years ago when I first moved in. I planted about. Oh, 50 or 100 bulbs in my front grass, mm. an area other people would call lawn, mm. but I wouldn't dare. And I, I get maybe 10 of them still come up. Why do you think that's so? Cause I you, think you, it's because our grass is so um, strong. You know, we've right. got all those hot weather grasses, cooch and paspalum mm. and all those grasses that don't survive in England. And a lot of eucalypts, which are, you know, they're not deciduous. They're not yeah. going dormant over winter and allowing the, the bulbs and things to do their thing. I don't think that's what it is. I've planted, wherever I've planted them in the garden, they're fine. Mm. Wherever I've planted them in the grass, they've just said, nah. Mm. I, I think it's, our grasses are just too tough. Mm. And we need them because, you know, we do have grass in summer, which if we planted those English grasses, we wouldn't see them from... Mm. Late September. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think and I, anybody who's um, around Tesla's, which is in Sylvan, they're open today and they've got lots and lots of different sorts of bulbs for sale. Yep. And irises and things like mm-hmm. that. They're 357 Monbulk Road in Sylvan. So anyone who fancies a little shop of bulbs mm. and they're all half price, which mm. is very nice, 50% off. And whenever I go up into the Dandenings, I often think, oh, I should come, but I should come here more often. Mm. Yes. It's so beautiful driving around, and there, there's quite a lot horticulturally going on up there, isn't there? Oh, there's huge amount, yeah. huge amount. From my place, if I look forward, I've got grapes. If I look to the left, I've got sheep and cattle. <laughs> if I look to the right, which is towards the back of the Dandenongs and Mombulk, it's just all, it's fruit trees it's it's raspberries and you can buy things on the side of the road road, cherries Mm. Mm. yeah the whole way through and a huge number of nurseries Mm. and a lot of them wholesale and you know there's different wholesales i'll open one one weekend a month they'll they will open yeah you get to know where they are after a while Mm. Mm. and that's always good fun Mm. so i suppose that tesla's there's um experts there um, ready, willing and able to give you advice on... I really like Teslas. They have their own garden, which they plant up every, or at various times during the year with yeah. things. So it's interesting. They've got a huge tulip tree that's just changed colour and it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. And they're very... Um, yeah, the people that work there tend to be very knowledgeable. Mm. I like talking to them. And they um, more and more they're having more unusual things. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of places now, I think, oh, I can't be bothered going there. I've bought everything they've got. Very much the same. Yes, same old, Mm. same old. Mm. But for me, I mean, Karanga is probably one of the best nurseries in the country. Mm. And then there's nurseries on either side of it that are both very good. The bottom one um, has really improved lately, I think. I tend to just, 
I drop into nurseries just to have a look. I don't necessarily <laughs> buy. I just like to have a look, see what's going on. You do know? they have veggies at that bottom nursery? Yes, they, they do. do. Okay. They do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really improved. It, it more often than not now has some fairly unusual things. Like I, um, they've got a sale on at the moment too. And I bought a, um, an angelica there, mm-hmm. the dark leaf form, which you very rarely see. It's an antique perennials plant, and I really like that. So I was, I mean, I've bought two plants. Mm. I bought at the, at the one on the other side of Karanga, they had some, they were throwing out some, um, what am I trying to say? Grevilleas. And, and they had a, a lovely grevillea for five dollars, and I thought, I don't know what you are, but I've got to have you. <laughs> <laughs> is that that one that you? No, in? that's oh, that's peaches, peaches and cream. Peaches and cream, okay, mm. yeah. Which is just, I've got a couple of peaches and cream, and it's just looking beautiful. Mm, mm. I was at uh, Hillsall Sanctuary during the week, and um, oh, nice. Yeah, you know, I haven't been there for twenty odd years. And I've noticed that they've opened up a lot. They've opened up the vet hospital. You can go in mm. and, and watch them perform operations or look what? after the animals. They've opened up their um, the breeding section. So they've got the um, captive breeding programs for the Leadbeater's possum, um, which is endangered. Pig, and, pigmy possum? Uh, the mountain pygmy possum. The uh, helmeted honey eater, which yeah. you know, because the, the Heho Sanctuary is just near me. Th- yeah, okay, yeah. And you know, yep. they're trying to buy another bit of the valley. So I heard for Hehos. Yep. And these stupid people are saying, no, we can't have them. We want a dairy farm. If we have a Heho Sanctuary bias, it'll be dangerous because there'll be too many eucalypts. <laughs> How can oh, you live? God. In the upper Yarra Valley and complain about eucalypts. Mm, mm, yeah, time yeah. to move to the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is. It's. I mean, Hillswells is brilliant. So, and they've also got the um, the corroboree frog. They're also doing a breeding yeah. program on the corroboree frog, which is tiny. It's a, you could fit it on a ten cent piece, and it's it's very bright. Isn't yeah, it? bright yellow and black. And where does it live? Uh, now I think it's Hotham because I think they had a release program up at Mount Hotham. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you now have access to the actual breeding program area, so you can go in and see um, which possums are going into torpor so they can't be brought out for show and tell, so to speak. Mm. And um, But, yeah, quite fascinating. And they've got that uh, nocturnal house, mm. which uh, they've got a couple of the lead beaters possums in there, and there was one that was running around like a crazy thing. So I stood there <laughs> for five minutes watching, and I thought lead beaters possum, they scramble at the bark to get um, critters and things underneath and it was scrambling away and I was like, what are you doing? And then I realised it was actually um, pulling apart the bark of this, um, it was a paper bark and um, each little section it was holding with its tail, so its tail got curlier and curlier as it collected more and more bark and then it rushed off to its nest to obviously go and line its nest. I thought it was just yeah, it was brilliant being able to see it but um, because they've um, simulated night because a lot of these animals are nocturnal um, it's all red lighting mm. in there so and you can your eyes need a bit of adjusting when you go in but it really is terrific to be able to see I mean obviously it's not out in the wild but it would be really hard to see that out in the wild anyway just because How a lot of them are big are those possums oh, the they're, they're, they're tiny they're tiny yeah you know probably no more than 15 yeah, centimetres yeah because I mean a, ma- a pygmy possum fits in the palm of your hand that's right yeah well lead beaters possum not much bigger not, not a lot bigger yeah and did you see they've had that victory at Nuji to stop the logging Ah, no, I didn't. Mm. Well, it's, it's, it's not stop, stop. Yeah. But, but they're not allowed to go ahead with it until it goes to the High Court. Mm-hmm. 
I think that was the um, Leadbetter possum people okay. that have managed yep. to stop oh, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're working quite closely with the helmeted honey eaters because they, both of these animals live in that same forest, that same type of forest. And that middle layer of shrubs, which is your uh, coprosmas and, and, and shorter melaleucas and whatnot and, and tea trees, um, that they're the shrubs that the possums use to get from tree to tree without having to come to the ground, mm. whereas the helmeted honey eaters will use them as a food source and also a nesting place. And what's what's actually happened is the deer, as the deer populations have grown, they've uh, grazed out that whole middle layer, which is one of the things that has really put pressure on these two critters. So it's not only land clearing and, and fire and that's gone through the place, it's also the, the deer population. And um, the deer also create these wallows along the uh, creek banks and river banks, which destroy all the sedges and grasses, which, of course, is home for insects. Mm. And so therefore there's another food source that's gone out the window. So they're trying to, you know, approach this topic from with a multi-pronged approach, I mm. suppose. So, you know, there's a deer culling program every year and um, they're replanting a whole area, as you'd probably know. I think they're, oh, they're planting... I think it's 30,000 new plants every year. And slowly the populations, especially of the helmeted honey eater, they've come back up from 50 uh, pairs in the wild to, I think it's 200. There there was a program on the radio on the ABC yesterday about the um, red-tailed cockatoos. Oh, yes. And saying how the government has pronounced that they must be, you know, they're, they're very threatened and blah and blah. And, of course, the reason they're so threatened is because we've knocked down everything down they the eat. Mm. And, and, they're, and they're hollows. I, I mm. learned that um, some of the cockies need hollows and trees that are up to five metres deep for nesting in. And so that's a tree that's at least 200 years mm. old. That's and a really old hollow. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, um, you know, they think that probably Victoria has the tallest tree in the world but we have no proof of it because we logged them all. Mm. So the, mm. the Americans have that. Uh, the, the sequoia is the tallest tree in the world, but it is... The tallest non-flowering tree, whereas our... We've leg, got the tallest yes, flowering, flowering tree. But they think that it's probably taller than the sequoia. Oh. But because we've logged so viciously... And, of course, what we used to do back in the 18th century is we'd cut them down to measure how tall they were. That's <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. But in a, in a, maybe in 150 years, we'll get yes. that record back again because yes. they grow quicker than the sequoias. Yeah, yes. maybe. So, fingers crossed, keep yeah. your eyes out. Except that they're all burning down now as well. Mm. Yeah, that's the most frustrating thing, isn't it? Mm. When you say in, in Tassie, I know there's a lot of um, private logging going on and uh, they're chopping down their trees to create paddocks for uh, sheep and things like that, and, and they're not even doing anything with the trees. They just put them in the middle of the paddock and burn them, and it's absolutely disheartening. Mm. But, uh, and, of course, the other thing that's happening in Tasmania is it's become, they're talking about it being the wine place of the world. The French are talking about coming to Tasmania to make champagne because... Sparkling wine. It's getting too... Well, it'll be champagne if it's <laughs> French, won't it? Oh, yeah. Um, because it's getting too, they think it'll be getting too hot there. And, of course, the King Valley, they've all said that they're going to have to move, change grapes or move south. I mean, the King Valley make the best Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris in Australia, but they're talking about having to leave the King Valley for a lot of the varieties they've got. Mm-hmm. Just warming up too much. Yeah. 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 Except that our government says there's no such thing. 
Mm, well, I suppose we should uh, first of all say Happy Mother's Day because it is Happy <laughs> yes. Mother's Day, and we've got a um, studio filled Good. with women today, which is very appropriate. We've got uh, Louise and Carol on the phones, and um, us three, three in here. Us. So, yeah, Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, I'm having high tea later on today. I'm so excited with Deb. Yep. Yep. Happy, Deb. happy Mother's Day, Deb. Yes, Deb. Yeah. <laughs> She'll be listening. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Where are you having high tea? Um, well, it's a surprise. Oh, so okay. I can't tell her. <laughs> She'll be listening. <laughs> She knows it's up in the Dandenongs. So it's oh. going to be beautiful up okay. there today. Yeah. Yes. Maybe we'll stop by Tesla's on yeah. the way home. Yeah, well, or do. Yeah, or Cloud Hill. Or I'm sure yeah. she'd like some bulbs. <laughs> I'm sure she would. No, she's actually going native at the moment, yes. which is yes. really nice. Don't encourage we've her. Just, we've just ripped out the front um, ever since forever. There's been two huge rhododendron and two huge camellias in the front garden bed of the house. And Mum's been slowly redoing the garden over the last few years. Where does she live, your mum? Croydon Hills. And she decided, she's like, right, I'm getting rid of these camellias and roadies. And they'd be 30-year-old, the camellias, 30-year-old camellias, the stumps on them were huge. And I was like, "Whatever, whatever you pay to get a stump remover person in will save you about $500 in physio bills if you try to do these out by So we had the stump remover guy, and that was so fun to watch. Have you ever seen it before, mm. a stump yep. remover? Just, it was like butter. Out of interest, can you remember how much it cost? It was about $150. Yeah, for the, the two stumps. For two yeah, stumps. Well, there was a, uh, two of the rhododendron stumps, but they weren't as big. He, he um, ground them down as well, and uh, he bought the mulcher in. So he got rid of all the extra, um, he got rid of the top part mm-hmm. of the You gave it away. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, he had the thing. He had the, the truck attached to the mulcher, so... I keep it all. I make them dump it all behind my shed. <laughs> but you've got a big enough place. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I certainly wouldn't take out a 30-year-old camellia. Ah, well... Where well, would my birds nest? <laughs> we've never had any birds nest in those. Oh, they nest in mine. No, we've never had any birds nest in them. But we're creating more habitat. So she's bought a whole heap of plants from the Cranbourne Friends and from Karanga and... It's going to be really, really pretty again. What's she putting in? So we put in uh, Pomoderis linigera. Pomoderis are such an underrated plant. I love Pomoderis. And when they flower, they're just spectacular. And the linigera has a re- it's a golden yellow mm-hmm. colour. Mm-hmm. It'll be beautiful. And the blanking. Fabalium, Argentium. A warata, Braidwood Brilliant. Yep. Which is very exciting. Because they, they like the similar conditions to yeah, the Yeah, everything, everything yep. I've read about waratahs is you plant them in a spot where a camellia or rhododendron would grow. Mm-hmm. I've tried and I've never succeeded. People, you hear so many different people going, yeah, it worked for me but didn't work here. And There's a place near me um, where I worked for the Upper Yarra Valley Garden Club. I was on the door when, when this place was open and they have got about five huge waratahs and it was so beautiful hmm. in the Don Valley. Absolutely stunning. They should grow well there. I mean, They should grow for me. But I think it's the Braidwood Brilliant one, which um, does It's the well, best one. Yeah, best for Melbourne. Yep. And, um, yeah, and I remember Angus lamenting that it, it grows better here than it does up in New South Wales. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what makes it the best, do you think? Oh, why I, is it? I think it's obviously just hardier. It doesn't mind our, our particular soils. I mean, Sydney soils are much sandier, uh, whereas we've got, generally heavier. speaking, much heavier soils mm. here. So, yeah, I, I 
I mean, and where camellias and rhododendrons like to grow, they like the sort of heavier, loamy soils, and the braidwood brilliant seems to like it. Mm, so. mm. And, and slight acidity as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe I'll give it another go. We encouraged you, have we, Virginia? Oh, I'd love to have a Waratah. Yeah, I think they're absolutely beautiful. stunning. Yeah, they are beautiful. So we got my mum got the Braidwood Brilliant, and then my brother decided he wanted a Waratah as well because he's just travelled around, spent a year travelling around Australia, and they were in the Blue Mountains at the right time mm. last at the end of last beautiful. year, and he saw these Waratahs flowering, and he's just just absolutely fallen in love with them. But he lives down on in Seaford on mm. quite sandy soil. So we've got him a Braidwood Brilliant. So we've got heavier soil mm. growing in one area and we've got a, a sandier soil. Well, it'll be very interesting soil. to so we'll see. see. Have yes. you done pH testing on the soils? No, I haven't. You should. I should. Yeah. I think I've got one at That home. way you've got another comparison. Yeah. Although I have to say the pH testing kits, I just find them quite, um, I don't know, very variable and they, they, yeah, they're not really scientific, are they? You think they'd find, think come up with something a bit more useful? They give you a good... They give you a very broad idea. I tested some soil in Point Lonsdale, or must have been a year ago now, and it came out at eight. Whoa! And that explained why it has. They haven't been able to grow anything. Yeah. So I thought the pH test was very good, Mm, really. I said, plant some broccoli, see how that goes. It lived. Mm, I mean, you know, it's just where they are is on the site of um, one of the old mansions. So Mm -hmm. I suspect what they've got is. You know, because it's not the rest of Point Lonsdale is quite acidic. Yeah, yeah. But their patch is really, really alkaline. Obviously, being altered somehow. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I mean the the soil tests that you can do. I mean, we brought in some of our favourite books, which we'll talk about later. And um, one of the ones I brought in is all about soil. And for me, that's a no-brainer, especially not only if you've just bought a place or just moved into a place, but even if you've lived in your home for you know years and years mm. um getting to know the soil do your drainage test do your um the sausage test you, you go yes, the sausage test, yeah. yeah just to see um what exactly what type of soil you've had do you have sandy soil clay soil i think that's that's a pretty good test for gardeners and it helps narrow down in a good way narrow down the options of what you can plant somewhere as well absolutely because Although, you know, the thing for me that I do and I say to people around me to do, the most important thing for my planting is where is the northwest wind there. Mm -hmm. That, Mm. for me, more than anything. I can plant something on one side of the house and on the other side of the house Mm. and a whole lot of things on the northwest just will not survive Mm. those hot summer winds. Mm. I've just done a garden design and the house is facing northwest and that was the biggest decision Mm. Um, maker for me for the plants that I picked, and we like I, we picked really tough plants because the northwest is just so strong, and especially in summer. Yep, northwest facing it just it's really it's a real it makes things really hot, especially if you know you got plants up against brick walls. As yes, well. yes, yeah, and a young garden where there's no where there's no shelter, and that and it's hard to get the trees in yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, and and it's I think that's the killer. For me, more than soil, more than anything else. Although, of course, being in the Yarra Valley, Mm. I don't have to worry about... I mean, I have got that lovely uh, volcanic soil, so I don't have to feed my soil very much. I do think we tend to overfeed. I think it's, you know, 
when you sort of see how much food people in the suburbs put on their gardens, and mm. I think we tend to overfeed, and that's not good for the water systems. I heard, I think it was Greg Moore from Burnley talking about it last year, and he said he said that we overfeed, but then you know you read up, you know when you should fertilise, and, and I think it depends on the plant that you put in, and it depends on you know whether you're putting in a tree or a shrub. I think if you're putting in a tree, you can overfertilise them, but shrubs, uh, you know, depends. I don't, think, I don't think so. I mean, I think if you're in sandy soil, you have to think about it, yeah. particularly if you buy the beach and you're growing something that's not a particularly beach tr- plant. Mm. Or a comp- uh, soil where there's lots of competition from more advanced trees. Trees mm. probably fertilise a bit more often. Mm. But I, I do think to fertilise with more than compost and is it, something we shouldn't do terribly often. Yeah, and it is. I mean, it's about feeding the soil, isn't it? That's what they say, feed the soil, not the plants. Because if, if you've got uh, really healthy soil you're going to have a really healthy plant. Mm. And, uh, yeah, the, the, one of the things that I've learned from um, Evan Klukas at uh, Karanga recently is that uh, he reckons that so many of us overwater our plants, which I, mm. I thought was interesting because they've got, as you know, a lot of display beds around the place, and he says none of them are irrigated. It do, they don't water them at all, and um, especially when you're planting at this time of year, although with this lower rainfall, obviously we need a bit more water irrigating on the plants, but um, he just says just put them in, give them a couple of established waterings and, and let them be. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't in. water my garden this year till March, April. Mm-hmm. By mm. then, it had just got, I couldn't keep going. Yeah. And it's interesting, a number of things that I thought were dead. I went to dig up a plectranth, no, not a plectranthus, what was it? I went up to dig, to dig up one of my plants, just, you know, one of those um, smaller things the other day, and I started to dig and I realised it was coming back. It looked mm. dead as a... D- oh. and, and absolutely dead. Yeah. And so I've gone round and a number of things that I thought were dead and going to have to come out are not. They're beginning to rebud. Mm-hmm. Well, which is it, very interesting, it, I think. Cause, it is, Because yeah. I just can't water... I mean, parts of my garden, I can't even get the hose to it. Mm-hmm. I don't have one long enough. Yeah, so you, you plant plants down there that don't need it, obviously. Well, not really. I just <laughs> hope for the best. <laughs> And and I um I do think there's a certain discipline in not being on being on tank water and not being mm-hmm. able to water all the time, and so I tend to water late in the summer is mm-hmm. when I start to water because I there's no point if yeah, I have to water things in January and February yeah. well then I might as well not have the plant and mm. the plants will get themselves through to a certain extent and then you can help yeah. them. My one exception strain. is the veggies. Yes, mm. that's mm. all I've watered this year and everything else is doing fine. My lemons were as, you know, dry. Lemons oh, needed. Yeah. yeah. And I, my oranges are always dry as mm. well. Mm. Need the um, some potash, Chloe. You you potash. know best. <laughs> I I need to water. No, I need to water it more because the the orange tree that I've got is in um, a wine barrel, but the wine barrel's falling apart, so it doesn't hold any water anymore because <laughs> it's just all drained out of the barrel. And I just don't water it enough. And I go to every time I go to peel, peel open one of the oranges. Give it a chance. Put it in the soil. It's huge. Okay. I can do it with my, <laughs> but it's in a huge wine barrel. It'd be a huge hole I'd have to dig. Maybe put it in another wine barrel that's not falling apart. Maybe. Yeah. Or just strap the wine barrel back together. Don't again you laugh? Something. I mean, all experienced horticulturists, and you just do the most stupid things sometimes. Oh, you just do everything wrong, and mm. and then oh yes. You I and I were talking about recently when we put things into a pot that's too big. 
And you tell you tell people all the time, you're like, don't put it into a too big a pot because it might drown and yep. uh, this, that and the other thing. And then I've done it. Yeah. <laughs> because you're thinking about the plant's potential. Yeah. Yes. So you, you plant a, pot out, a plant out of a tube and you put it in this half wine barrel yeah. <laughs> yeah. and expect it to survive. You just want to give it so much space for it to right. flourish. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. my oxalis are coming into flower. Speaking of pots, I've got lots of pots of oxalis and they're many absolutely beautiful. About about oxalis well needless to say it's not yellow i know <laughs> they're, they're pretty cool the candy stripe varieties i've got candy stripe yeah, yeah they're beautiful and i've got one they call sh- shamrock in the nurseries i've noticed because they don't want to say that it's an oxalis mm. oh yes so they they've dropped the oxalis bit and call it's it a lucky shamrock plant. it's absolutely beautiful mm. it's a pale orange and it's very pretty I, I do grow them all in pots yeah yeah just stick them under a a grapefruit tree through the summer. I love things that are just dormant in summer and I don't have yeah, to worry about nice. them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when we were in Bruges last year, there were a whole lot of window boxes with Oxalis purpurea. Oh, lovely. And boy, they just oh. look spectacular yeah. with those kind of burgundy leaves. Yes, they're beautiful. Yeah, quite, quite amazing. And I think um, as... Stephen Ryan always goes on about, you know, there's a couple of weedy species and we're all terrified. It's, it's like yeah. the nematodes, I think. You know, n- mention nematode to a garden and they'll run screaming for the hills, but I think there's something like 25,000 species of nematodes and the, the vast majority, of the majority good. are goodies. Benefit. benefit yeah, yeah, beneficial. I suppose we should get to some community announcements, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> it's carried away here. Um, oh, um, did you want to go, Virginia? Yes, I've got a lovely one, which is in, it's an open garden in Drysdale. It's called Red Gums, and the reason it's called Red Gums is because it has the biggest stand of Red Gums still mm. ex- existing in that area. It's a six-acre garden at 22 Drakes Road, Drysdale. It was established by Sam Cox, who many know um, is a brilliant uh, garden designer mm. and works with native plants only and it is a really beautiful peaceful garden so Mm. if people have uh, got the chance and they're in that bit of town well not town that bit of the Bellarine Mm. off to Red Gums Open Garden at 22 to 30 Drake's Road Drysdale excellent you're up Chloe and there's not much on this this weekend actually or coming up Everyone's sitting in front of the fire (laughs) but the Friends of Burnley Garden are having a a talk with Andrew Laidlaw on Wednesday the 16th of May, so this Wednesday. Andrew is the landscape architect of the Royal Botanic Gardens uh, and he's worked on the Gill Falls volcano and, and part of the, the working wetlands projects that the gardens are doing at the moment and the Ian Potter Children's Garden. He's all had a, he's had a hand in. Uh, so he's going to be talking about the, the talk is titled Gilfoyle to Gaza and he's taught at Burnley for many, many years very very interesting man uh, if you would like to go and book the number for the Friends of Burnley Gardens office is 9035 or you can email them friends.burnley at gmail.com and it's at the Burnley campus 500 Yarra Boulevard Richmond and starts at 7 o'clock the reason that's called Guilfoyle to Gaza is he's been working on a children's garden in Palestine so it is an interesting, you know, somebody like Guilfoyle who has got that garden in Melbourne is mm. still his design uh, to working in Palestine, so which is 
the most popular, the Gaza Strip's the most populated part of the world. And it's got very little green space. Mm. Oh, wow. mm, yeah, no, I think that will be an incredible talk. Um, now, one of the gardens that, uh, or the garden that I'm mentioning is one that I've been uh, mentioning for a few weeks, and, but this week we are giving away a, uh, well, we, the Open Gardens Victoria, are giving away a uh, double pass. And if you want that double pass, you can give us a buzz on 94190155. So the garden is Neoka, and it's at 105 Gumtree Road in Research. It's open on Saturday the 19th and Sunday the 20th of May from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Entries $8, under 18 free, students $5. And Neoka is an unusual and fascinating garden of many and varied succulents, recapturing the owner Jack Larty's South African heritage. Entering the property, there is a bed of natives along the fence, followed by a large bed of agaves and aloes, and uh, on the other side is a propagation area. The main garden is past the house, where an array of Jack's fabulous pottery is beautifully displayed on tree bollards. A garden surrounds the pool area with unusual aloes, rocks and succulents, creating a stunning effect in colour and design. Uh, so, uh, yes, that's at 105 Gumtree Road in Research uh, next Saturday and Sunday. Uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio is Chloe Foster and Virginia Hayward. Uh, we should open the lines uh, to callers, although we do have a caller waiting already. She must have taken the yeah. number. From, she knows the number by heart. Um, but if you want to uh, give us a buzz and ask a question online, the number is 94190155. Uh, but right now we have uh, Sharon from Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Oh, good morning. Um, look, I'm ringing for my sister, so I actually haven't seen the plants, but it was just a Coria Elba question. Um, she said that uh, they're losing their leaves and just leaving sticks. Would that be something eating it, do you think? Or I've never had that problem. Could no. be being overwatered. Ah, that's um, highly likely because they had a, um, a pipe burst. Ah. Yeah. Coria alba grows along the coast in very, very sandy soil, so it likes it really, really dry. Um, and if it's dropping its leaves, particularly usually if overwatering, they'll start dropping their older leaves first. Um, and it could be it could be overwatering for a coria, would be my guess. Yeah, that's a good point. Because coria alba, they've got those slightly. Furry, le- uh, furry leaves, don't they? So mm, I, I wonder if they them. wouldn't. I've never seen pest attacks. Not to say it wouldn't they're happen. They're such a tough species of plant. plant. Yeah. They, um, at my place, the rabbits leave them alone. Really? Mm. Yeah. I, I'd say it might be overwatering. But yeah, I've just yeah, been looking. It. I've been down the beach this morning at the um, Rickards Point, and they're flowering beautifully. But I didn't see any leaf problem. So mm. Yeah. No, and especially if she's had. Um, a burst pipe. Yes. That means wet feet. Has it been a burst pipe for a while? Well, they went away for a week and came home, and then she heard a noise at night. So it could have been there. Could have been happening for a week, or you know, more. yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, um, the burst pipe is fixed now. Yeah. Okay, and I mean, in that case, it'll probably come back. Yeah, probably just leave it, um, and yeah, maybe that's, prune that's, it. That's, prune it later on this year yeah well that was the next question she asked me to ask you was could she prune it hard or 
Dr. Corrie, I've never pruned them really hard. You can, you can prune them hard. I wouldn't prune it right now because it's obviously under a little bit of stress and if there's no leaves on it and you prune it back and there's still, you know, there's even more less leaves. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd probably wait until maybe springtime or I don't know how much longer you'd wait, maybe end of, end of next summer to prune it, but just sort of let it be a little bit leggy and let it come back yes. for a while. Yes. Okay. I think when you've got a sick plant, you're foolish to do too much to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of a natural reaction. You go to tidy it up and you think you're helping. Yeah, uh, that's, that's right. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. No All right. Th- thanks, Sharon. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Uh, yeah, we should uh, just mention that the garden pass has gone to Nyoka. Uh, and also uh, Julie from uh, Bendigo was asking for some help sourcing the uh, Yucca Ivory Towers in the Bendigo area. I had a, a quick online search, and I think Lamley may have them. Julie, so you might want to give uh, Lamley a call, Lamley Nursery, and uh, if they don't have it, I'm sure they'll be able to point you in the right direction. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show, and uh, if you want a um, question answered, give us a buzz on 94190155. I'm Abby Bishop, and with us in the studio with me is Virginia Hayward and Chloe Foster. Um, Chloe, just getting back to uh, Luke's travels mm-hmm. around, so your brother's travels around uh, the country with Maddie, his partner. Um, was he into horticulture before the trip? They've been a little bit more aware of it in the last few years because I am aware of it in gardens and, you know, botanic gardens. So they've been a little bit eyes open the last few years, but they sent me so many beautiful photos of flowers that they saw throughout last year. It made me so jealous. It was so nice to see them noticing all the incredible flora that they were seeing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Making you jealous. You know, they saw some beautiful... um, Carimbia giant um, bloodwoods down in the southwest of WA. And oh, yes. The Kimberley, and they saw some incredible flowers up in the Kimberley and, and the Pilbara. But um, I think the, the Blue Mountains was, the Kimberley was their favourite, but mm-hmm. the, they said the Blue Mountains and the what they saw in flower in the Blue Mountains was, um, le- like for them, it was it levelled what they saw in the Kimberley. Yeah. And... It, I don't think people give it the credit that it that it deserves. Like mm. they just they absolutely love mind the blown. Yeah, yeah. There's yep. just I mean at the time of year that they were there too. They were in the Kimberley in sort of um, in June, July. So there wouldn't have been as much in flower, but and they were in the Blue Mountains in spring. So mm. and that sort of except that I think it. when when I've got English here and 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 it's like my garden is just beginning now to really come into flower. Mm-hmm. There's so much in flower, mm. and I think. People who forget that a lot of hot weather plants prefer to flower outside of summer. Mm. I mean, really, my garden is worst in February, and there's le- I, I've got a few agapanthus. They look fabulous in February. They look horrible all the rest of the year. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's not a lot in flower in February, that's and it's what I, boiling that's hot. That's one of the things I love about Australian plants is they flower at other times, times yes. of the year apart mm. from spring. So you, you're kind of guaranteed to have flowers in your garden all year round. I went round and just photographed. First I photographed all, all the salvias in flower, oh, and there was beautiful. just so many. And the little birds are just going absolutely off their heads at the moment. Drunk <laughs> mm, <laughs> on nectar. But you know what I saw yesterday, which I could not believe, 
the king parrots, two young king parrots, just for hours sat eating my pomegranates. Oh. Just sat there. That's nice mm. of them. Oh, that, well, yeah. I, I don't know what's wrong with my pomegranates, but they're not very nice. They're, they're too sharp. They're not, they're not sweet at all. So I'm very, I'm, I would, as far as I'm concerned, a king parrot can have anything. Yep. I adore the king parrot. Is it the type of variety? I don't call? know whether it's variety or whether I'm just a bit too cold. I mean, the tree's lovely. I don't mind, mm. but I would like to have edible pomegranates. Mm, They're mm. not edible. Is it a tall tray for you or still a it's, shrubby? It's shrubby, but mm. it'd be 10 foot mm-hmm. and it'd be 8 foot wide. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very pretty thing. And a decent amount of fruit? Oh, heaps of fruit. And only the king parrots coming in? Well, I haven't been looking really. It's just the king parrots are so noticeable because mm. they're such a big bird. Yeah. yeah. And they just didn't move. You don't have the sulphur crested cockies? I do. They don't. Um, they don't go for it. They haven't. I don't trust them. They haven't found my walnut tree, I'm very pleased to see. Ah. So I got all my they walnuts. They might hear about it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're listening. <laughs> yeah. I don't trust them. <laughs> I stop, I stop putting feed out when the cockies are around a lot mm-hmm. because they bully everybody else. They yeah. didn't find my peach tree this year and I was really happy about that. Mm-hmm. But they found my apple tree. So, Yes, well, I don't mind, you know, my, if I get some, mm. I've got quite a few apple trees. My walnut tree I found when I chopped down a huge um, dying wattle and underneath it was a 20-foot high walnut tree. So that was a find <laughs> that you just missed. <laughs> I jumped my head. I literally missed it. Foliage on that wattle looks a little bit odd. <laughs> oh, look, we should go to uh, another caller. We've got Sebastian from Phillip Island. Hello, Sebastian. Hello, AB. How are you, uh, panel? Good. Good, thanks. Good. Um, look, I've got, a, I've got a question. I'm a landscaper and I started a job in, um, in Powell. And uh, I got talking to one of the neighbours and he said, oh, I've been over the soil. It's very heavy, heavy clay. And he said, the soil's full of buckshot. And I thought, you know, what do you, what do you mean? And he, he got a magnet out and ran a magnet along the ground and, and just sort of bits of iron ore, bits of iron were just jumping to this magnet. Now I'm wondering, um, it's heavy, heavy clay. I'm wondering, is it going to um, sort of disrupt any sort of shrubs or trees that I'm going to put in? Whereabouts is it? It's in, it's in Taos, in, on Phillip Island. All right. And it, it's... Some of the toughest clay I've ever sort of dealt with. It's, it's sort of class P, so problematic. <laughs> and it's, it's just, um, yeah, I'm just curious now. It was sort of a hard job to sort of pick the right plants that are going to survive in this condition. And now it sort of feels like I'm facing another sort of thing with um, high iron content or something. Or I'm not sure what it would be. Is the soil quite red? Yes. Okay, so, uh, yeah, sounds like it does have that iron oxide in it. Yeah, mm. yeah but it's an amazing amount. Like I think you need, you need to do AB's test of digging a hole and seeing how quickly it drains because that's your first question. And pH test especially will be important mm. because, uh, I mean, plants, they will take up um, what minerals they need from the soil, you know, depending on what, what the pH is. So if, for something that's really high in iron, that could be prohibiting them from taking up other minerals as well. So yep. I'd be definitely looking at doing a pH test for that. It's likely to be acid. Yeah. It's and looking at other gardens or um, what else is growing sort of immediately around that property. Sure. Yeah, there's got two, two big managums. So that's straight up, like a boggy site. Yes, yeah. yes. Heavy clay, boggy sides, I think, and we'll 
anyway. Yeah, indigenous plants to fill up island might be one of the... Definitely. It yeah. might be some yeah. of the stuff that will grow there. Yeah, so well. yeah, we, are, we are going down that sort of path. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just sort of, sort of might ask the question and just see if that's sort of a common thing. I, I've never come not, across it myself. Not buckshot. Yeah. I know, you know, you sort of see buckshot in, in Western Victorian soils. I've seen it in Little Desert, but um, yeah. I would not have thought that it would pop up <laughs> in Eastern Victoria and Phillip Island. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah, it's interesting. No, I'd definitely be doing all the the three soil tests. Yeah. Sebastian. Sure. Thanks very much. Yeah. Okay. Good thank luck. You. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Hmm, that is a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it's one of the things I uh, learned when I was writing my habitat book. Um, yeah, it's just about the iron oxide in uh, various soils around the yeah. place. And yes. Yeah, and I mean, with pH. Depending on what pH you've got, a mineral or um, an an element may or may not be available because because of the pH. That's right. So, yeah, it's a really, it's a pretty big factor. And this comes back to feeding. People think, oh, it's short of this. I've got to put a whole lot of it in the soil. But if the reason it's short of it is because the pH is wrong for the plant, Mm -hmm. you can pour as much magnesium or whatever into the soil. It's not going to make any difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So do a pH test. PH and then test. have a look to see yeah. what pH your plants yeah. expect. And if Sebastian's still listening, maybe mix in as much compost into those garden beds as you can too to help break up the clay a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, I thought your advice was really good, Chloe. If, it, if we're planting indigenous, these plants are used to They're that used to that soil. soil. Yep. Yeah. So we, we, as gardeners, I think we want to do as much work as we can sometimes and yeah. get out there and feed and prune and water and everything. But if, we've, if we're planting indigenous, those plants are going to need a yeah. lot less care and maintenance. Uh, hopefully they'll be automatically more, more healthy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, but so I think we have to make a very clear distinction between native plants and indigenous. Yeah, you know, so every now and again somebody will say to me, oh, but that's from New Zealand. Why have you got that in your garden? I say, well, it's closer than northern Western Australia, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, indigenous means indigenous. It means in the area. Immediately in the area. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I did a, a bit of a test and uh, the size of Australia, a lot of... of um, Europe, like Western Europe, would fit into Australia. Mm. The whole of Western Europe. Yes, yeah, so, so, so they don't, you know, kind of say, oh, you know, someone in uh, in England doesn't think they're planting indigenous if they plant something from France or Greece or Greece. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but we have this thing just because it's within Australia. But and uh, and historically, it is only an accident that Australia is one country. As a con- we're a continent, we could easily be three or four countries. Mm-hmm. I do think sometimes people are ridiculous. I kind not plant a plant from broom in my garden because it won't grow and that's just how it is have you tried no (laughs) wouldn't it be nice if you tried (laughs) well no i am stupid and i do continually try and grow things in my garden that are not appropriate i've got a sturt's desert pea in a pot at home exactly i'm gonna go so well flowered its butt off this year but i think it's dying yeah it's not looking great i think it just flowered prolifically because it was going to die and now it's died back you saved seed didn't you yes i did gave me some yeah Yeah. and and there is no question with something like a stirt desert pea we got treated as an annual in victoria Mm. Mm. so virginia i mean talking about the plants in your garden you brought in a (laughs) huge bunch of delightful flowers i've got just slowly wilting yes aren't they (laughs) i tell you though this one this is um, 
a tree. It would be... She pulls it apart. Mm-hmm. It, w- it's, it's would be, oh, 4.5 metres. Mm-hmm. It's a really big thing, and it does that four metres in one year. Mm. This is a Montanoa. It, it's a, they call it the Mexican tree daisy. Ah, yes. It is absolutely beautiful. It's just covered at aut- in autumn, early winter. It is covered in small, very daisy-like flowers. It's in the daisy family. It's in the Asteraceae family. Mm. It comes from Central America, hence the Mexican tree daisy. And I cut it down to knee level every year, and it gets back up to 20 foot mm. and is covered in when, flowers. When do you cut it down? <clears throat> Soon. So, yeah, so it would die off in winter. Would I our winters kill it off? I don't know. It doesn't. It, mine doesn't. Okay. I'd have to see whether Sue's lasts through the winter because her garden's colder than mine. It doesn't, but I think if I didn't cut it down, well, it's very brittle, mm-hmm. one, yeah. so I think if I let it get um, three, four years growth and it's heading up to, you know, 40 feet, I think it would just start snapping. Yeah. It's very brittle. And is it so multi-stem? It's multi-stem, so it takes a lot of space. So yeah. to cut mm. it down is important. It's a large perennial shrub. It is really. Yeah, it is, but it's the size of a tree. Yeah, a small tree, but a tree. I could see that making a wonderful informal hedge. Yes, ex- if, you, if you had a huge property. Yeah, no, it would make a good hedge, yeah. except that you'd still have that problem of it Beautiful. needing to come down every year. So. Mm. Out of the year, it wouldn't be a hedge. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is this extremely pretty yellow thing is another very good hedge. Yep. This is a Cape honeysuckle. Okay. Tacoma capensis. You mm. usually see it as an orange plant. Yep. And this one would be 15 foot high and 10 foot wide. Of course, I've just let it go. Mm. Um, I'm going to prune it a bit this year because it is because it's beginning to sucker. But it's been in for years. It's only just beginning to sucker. The mm-hmm. orange one does sucker, mm-hmm. and it makes a fantastic hedge mm-hmm. or a fantastic cover for a fence, a fence line. And it does have those uh, honeysuckle-like like flowers. Yes, yeah. it's a South African plant. I think it grows Swaziland, South Africa, mm-hmm. and it's. I think it's really beautiful yellow. Uh, yellow, I think, can be quite a difficult colour to have in the garden. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit subtle. It's not quite bright yellow, but it's definitely yellow. And it's you know, given that it's ten foot by fifteen foot, and it's covered in flowers, so mm. you can see it for a mile. It's just extraordinary. And how long will it flower for? It'll flower for eight weeks, mm-hmm. which is pretty good value. And, of course, the little birds love it. And, and it does get nests, which is good because mm-hmm. so it's, it's evergreen. So yeah, it does, very, They're a very dense plant too, Yes, they? Yeah, they're very dense. I mean, I, when I first came back to Australia to look after my father, we lived in Kew and there was one right along the fence, an orange one right along the fence. And that in queue, the soil was really sandy and difficult, and it coped really well with it. Right. Oh, so it's not uh, not scented. No, no, no it's but not scented. But can you, t- can you taste it? I used to. You guys used to eat the um, oh the bottom part, the nectar, yes, at the bottom yes, part yes, of yes. honeysuckles. Yep. And salvias as well. I haven't pull done out it to salvias. Yeah. Mm. You brought in a, a. I've got quite a few salvias. We've got enough today. Here flowers here for morning tea this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I've gone a bit over the top, really. If, Cl- if Chloe suddenly stops talking, it's because she's keeled over from eating flowers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that she knows nothing about. Oh, it's quite sweet. 
a little bit of nectar. And well, speaking of salvias, this one. Whoa! Whoops! Sorry, everyone. I just knocked my mic in enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. This is salvia confortiflora, mm. and I think it is absolutely beautiful. I've seen it growing in Britain, so a lot. It comes from Brazil. Uh, and I saw it at Sissinghurst, and it was absolutely lovely. I've got one planted on my west side, mm. and it struggles a bit there. So I've propped on some, and, and Meg's propped me some. Sue's propped me some. I've got about five to go in because I think it's so beautiful. How big does it get? Um, well, I think with all these things, it's much better if you prune them. Yeah, well, salvias are always better prune. It looks like a larger growing salvia, not a yes, small shrub. It's not it's not huge. It's not like those Mexican ones at the moment that are winter flowering. They're all in bud and they're sort of 10 foot high. This mm. one, I would say, gets to about 4 foot. Right. Cuz the inflorescence on it the is infl- 1 foot. Yes, mm. the infl- <laughs> I know. And the flowers are small. They're tiny, yeah. But because it's so long and it's a real orangey mm. orange. orange and red in a way. Yeah. 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 Although but it's it, it's because of because of Faded fire engine. Maybe. It's got a. It, it does have a slight brownish tinge, mm, yeah. which softens it. But the foliage is really nice too. It's yes, it's a big leaf. A big leaf, mm. a little bit, you know, grey on the underside of it. Is like, that is that the one of the bigger leafed salvias? Do you think? Oh, I haven't seen a leaf that long. Oh, I've got a lot. A lot is, of the Central American ones have got quite big leaves. Where do you get a lot of your salvias from? Because they they're not. Bog standard salvias. No, well, the Salvia Society is always a place to get salvias. Yeah. And if you look up the Salvia Society online, you'll find that they are in the Dandenongs. And you can always get um, from the Salvia Study Group or the Salvia yeah. Society. There's a number of people that really specialise. There's a very good um, mob up in Albury who do Sue Templeton she does wonderful salvias mm-hmm. and also uh, the Larkmans Clive and Di Larkman so Di's Delightful Plants she does a lot of salvias yeah. as well and that, that's uh, mail order salvias oh, there you go. Uh, yeah. yes and, and, and the, the salvia and you'll find the salvia group have got, always got stalls at the um, sales plant sales that come up and you mm. can contact them if you just contact them online mm. And they have, they grow lots and lots and lots of different salvias, and of course, at various in spring you can find the salvias in most of the nurseries. At the moment, the only salvia I've seen regularly in the nurseries is salvia Keegan, which I've got here somewhere, and it's a really pretty little salvia. It's now it's one of the more oh yes I love those ones yes. well behaved. I'm afraid mm. it's salmon coloured almost. Yes, yeah. yes, and it and. It's a, it's knee high and smaller leaf. Yes, a, smaller leaf. A bit more delicate. Yeah, yes. I've got a, a I think a white version of it. There's the the heat wave range. The heat wave range. Yes, a very PGA con- grow. Yes, mm. a very contained and yeah. very good. And of course, the other PGA one I've got here is um, so cool purple, which is just wonderful. Mm. They did a whole they did a range of so cool last year a purple and a lavender, mm-hmm. um, a mauve. And so there, I've planted a whole line of them down one of my paths, and they just look beautiful. Do you prune all your salvias once a year, or do you Mm, every couple of years? I I try. My garden's too big to get my pruning done properly. Yeah. I'm pruning at the moment, which, of course, is a little bit risky, but what I do is I prune into green growth. Yeah. Just because if you don't, they just get too leggy. Yeah. And you just end up 
um, and somebody hacked into my rosemary. I've, I've got a really big rosemary bush, and of course, they want it was draped over the path, and they hacked it back. Well, total mistake because it won't grow from the bottom. Yeah. So it's going to have to come out now. So that, that's the Lamiaceae family as well. Yes, so very much. Plants in that family can take really, really harsh pruning so long as you leave green on it and leave, you know, at least one set of leaves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got the uh, Salvia Anthony Parker in large containers and uh, they're probably, uh, I don't know, a metre, 1.2, and with huge sprays of beautiful purple flowers that the eastern spinebills adore and, and the bees. And I just, mm. I hack that down. Which, yeah. which one is it, It's Gina? Anthony Parker. Anthony Parker, yeah, yes. Yeah, so it's a oh, leucantha. Yeah, so those leucanthas are fantastic. Yeah, and it, they amazing. do, I mean, they and get I, hit by the frost, but then I just hack them right down to the base and but they But if you hack it regularly, up. the base stays green, whereas if you don't hack it regularly, yes, it I think that's probably the key. and they get yes. twiggy. Yes. And I find also with, with the, I've got a series of Anthony Parkers in my top bed, and they just looked shocking a week ago. And um, the rain, they've all come back. Mm. They've come back beautifully. Mm-hmm. A bit of rain. Yeah, okay, we should get to another caller. We've got uh, Tim and Sunshine. Good morning, Tim. It's Tim. Sorry? It's Ken from Sunshine. Oh, how are you? I'm well, thank you. And how are you? Lost sound very good. <laughs> well, how are you sitting here having a nice womanly chat? Well, I'm just cooking my wife's bowl I do every morning. I'm, I'm doing breakfast. Oh, well, oh lovely. Um, What's your address? We'll come over afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> All I wanted to say was I'm... I, I'm I'm uh, mad on Indigenous plants because I'm frightened that we're going to lose them from the area and councils should be planting Indigenous. And I've planted about... I've got an easement at the back of my place and I've planted 30 trees from that are Indigenous except I've got a Cougamundra and a a wattle from um, South Australia and those plants kept me awake of a night time growing and they grow, grow so well and I've never watered them. <laughs> and, uh, well, the Cootamundra can be weedy, can't it? Oh, it can, but I love it. I love the... But, but all the rest is I've got about 30 trees out there and most 99, except for two of them, are indigenous to this area. Lovely. And have you noticed a increase in birds in, in your garden? Listen, I have got... <laughs> the garden's a bit of a mess now. I'm getting older, but um, the um, I've always had uh, parrots, and um, I encourage birds. I encourage everything <laughs> to come I, into my garden. It's so true, isn't it? When I moved into my place, I had no small birds at all. Now I have just got so many, and it's just because I've put in habitat for them. Mm. That's, that's exactly right, and it's lovely to just sit out there and enjoy it. Mm, yes. Mm, mm. And what's your council? Brimbank Council. Okay. And are they usually fairly sort of environmentally minded? Oh, oh yeah. A few of them are. Yeah. Um, we just had a blue over. We saved, um, they wanted to uh, sell off a, a, a small park. Oh, I remember that. Area and um, this, we were the first council they tried to sell it. Well, we kicked up that much of a fuss. They... Um, <laughs> they're redoing the park and they're putting swings and slides in there and they've redone it and um, there's just a lot of small parks like that. In our area there's probably about eight. Oh, yes. And, um, 
we're protecting them and uh, so so yeah so yeah so let's um, hope that uh, Pam has this oh, and that mob out there have the same success in saving their parks because yes, yes, I, it I seems to be a new habit, that. doesn't it? Um, and we were the first council I did it to, and I said to one of the, the councils, I said, that's all right, I think you sell the parks off. I said, we'll still have beautiful parks. I said, I know you've got a beautiful home, you've got a lovely backyard and a front yard, and there, there, there's a new park for the area. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and did you talk to Pam about it all? Yes, I certainly Give her did. some advice? Oh, yes, yes, I certainly did. Yeah. I certainly did. Yeah, because I remember the fight that you went through. Because the, uh, the government in the, um, when we first shifted here in the 70s, they wanted to put all the Moxie's trade to Victoria, from the chemical companies, the lot, from Sunshine to, um, to Hoppers Crossing, and we formed a group called the Sunshine Action Group, and we fought them and we won. How many were in your group, Ken? Oh, half the area. We, we, had a, we, we knocked on every door. In Sunshine, and we, yeah. we had a demonstration, and the great Jimmy Cairns was our Member of Parliament, and I thought, oh, we might get, uh, we might get, um, 800, we finished up with 10,000 residents. Whoa. Wow. And that... it was a lot of work, and a lot of doors knocked on. Yeah. But if you want to win, you've got to, you've got to do, you've got to do the, you've got to do the hard work. Well, how wonderful that you all stood up for the environment. Oh, yes, my own. Yeah. Well, if we don't, we've got nothing, and we're not going to continue. That's right, yeah. Well, I know they are having some luck. In Eltham, I received an email recently to say a few of the parks had been um, saved, so I know they're, they're doing them one by one. Well, all they've got to do, and I think Pam should be saying to people, um, that, oh, it's not Pam, is it? Um, I think they should be saying to them at Eltham, the same as what we did. Well, your house would make a lovely park. <laughs> <laughs> you won't go in the house, but your backyard and your front yard will be beautiful. No, that's right. <laughs> and they back down and they're cowards. Yep, yep, yep. All right, I love your show and it's... it's I'm glad people are speaking on Indigenous plans. Absolutely, Ken. Yeah. Well, I hope you um, have a lovely breakfast. I'm, I'm sure I will. <laughs> All right, thanks for your call. Bye, thank you. Bye for now. Bye. There's a real problem around here in Collingwood because what was a very industrial area is, but only at the most two storeys high, is being turned into ten storeys high. And because it was industrial and there were no parks, they're not putting any in. So it's becoming incredibly dense. And there is there is there are parts where there is not a single tree. Mm, mm, yeah. Which is, just means it's going to be hot, hot, hot if there's no trees to break break the heat in summer. Mm. And it just seems to me such bad planning to not say to all those people who own that those properties and are selling them to developers, well. You know, we're going to take a bit from all of you to make a park somewhere, mm. to just plant some trees. And also I think uh, rooftop gardens and balcony gardens should be the norm rather than the exception. exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's something like two and a half million um, high-density homes around the place and, and seven million standalone houses around Australia and, you know, obviously more and more apartments going up with the balconies and I'm always seeing who's planting what where and um, I noticed, I can't remember where it was, but I went past a, a fairly new apartment block uh, last week and uh, they had... Uh, 
uh, climbers growing up each of the balconies. It looked like herbertia or something. It was quite interesting. So obviously there are some developers that are bringing plants into their apartment blocks but I just think rooftop gardens and balcony gardens, rain gardens in the front garden, anything to slow the amount of stormwater going into Mm. the system and uh, filter it as well and also provide a source of water for any plants that you do have on site. Uh, I think think the uh, design possibilities um, you know they're there it's, it's, it's quite possible to have a beautiful garden to uh, I just think if all balconies are built with inbuilt planter boxes and, and, uh, then, and they're actually big enough Absolutely. You know, people bigger, want to sit there. Yeah, that's right. And Not just put the washing there. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and by planting indigenous plants, as we keep talking about, uh, much more likely to survive in, in that area. And uh, the cooling effects they have too with those sort of rooftop gardens. That's right. Less yeah. reflection back up into the atmosphere. That's and, right. And, and and cooling of the apartment blocks themselves. Yes. Uh, yeah, not just the earth. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something like 20 odd percent uh, cooler that you, you don't have to use your um, air conditionings and yeah so the, the benefits are huge yeah yeah so um, now we did have a uh, call from Michael who was interested in talking about um, the the timelines for horticulture so planning planning your gardens I suppose and maybe planning what's going to be in flower when that sort of thing, is that something that you take into consideration? One of the things I also think is that when you move into a new place, you're mad if you immediately start mm. pulling everything out. Mm. You know, you need to live in a place before you've got a sense of where the sun yep. is, what is actually there, what bulbs might be there. Where heavy rains gather, yeah. You know, you need to know a garden before you start. At, like, at least a year. I would say. Yeah, I think you and I, and I, it upsets me when I see people move in and immediately start restructuring things and they don't really know what's there, what they might be doing, what they might. And although you mightn't have the absolute tree you want, any tree is better mm. than something that's only ankle high. Mm. And it's all very well to say, oh well, I'm going to plant another tree, but you know that takes. 30 years to get up. Mm. So you need to really seriously think before you take down something that's 30, 40, 50 years old. Mm. Because it's not, that's, I mean, where they're, where they're putting the new um, rail in along St Kilda Road and they're taking down all those huge trees. Now they say we're going to plant more trees. Yes, but 50 years? We haven't mm. got 50 years. Mm. It's mm. Going, in 50 years it's going to be so hot we need established trees. We don't, and the reason they're doing that is because it's cheaper than going deeper. Mm. We'll go deeper. Yeah, it's quite scary. And, and with the, uh, that Corella influx that we had in Melbourne lately, that, uh, that they descended onto all the plane trees around the place, I think part of the problem is that the indigenous plants are being removed. Yes. Mm. And uh, I had a, uh, a gardener acquaintance uh, from the Geelong area and she was saying that uh, her garden, she used to see, you know, maybe four or five magpies every day and when the new freeway went in, suddenly there was 50 magpies descending <laughs> on the place because they didn't have anywhere to go and yeah. the residents were confused as to what to do and, I mean, I'm sure a lot of those birds would have died. It's, yeah, really quite sad yeah that's horrible that is horrible so but i think also you do need to be patient one of the things one of the things for me when i left britain and i made the move from politics to plants 
I've never received a phone call at two o'clock in the morning from a plant. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I like them. They don't talk back at you. And and they they move slowly. Yes. Whereas, you know, I mean, my boss was in the cabinet, and so the speed at which things used to happen was just frightening. Mm. No, you, you can and, and so I, lo- I, I love the move to plants. The plants are just so much more peaceful. Speaking of plants, I'm desperate to talk about a couple of the plants that I brought in Go today. Go for it, mate. Um, this one <clears throat> is a gorgeous ground cover. So if anyone's after a uh, ground cover for a uh, mostly a semi-shaded, but will cope with sun position, um, copes with most soil types. So this is a uh, Herbertia pedunculata. And uh, as Chloe will know, um, herbertias are a fantastic group of plants. There's about 150 species. Um, most are native to Australia. There's a few that are um, in Fiji and New Caledonia and, and, and surrounding. But uh, these are the guinea flowers, and uh, they've all got uh, guinea flower in their name, whether it's um, stalked guinea flower or erect guinea flower, prickly guinea flower, climbing guinea flower, climbing guinea flower, etc., etc. And they're beautiful yellow buttercup-like, buttercup-like flowers. Um, this particular one is uh, Herbertia pedunculata boomer, and uh, the main difference between this and the um, non-cultivar version is the flowers are apparently uh, much bigger than the traditional Herbertia pedunculata. But it's got uh, lovely wiry sort of reddish-brown stems, um, tiny little leaves, so it creates a, a wonderful mat. Uh, I've got it planted at a Heelsville property, and it's uh, one of the ones that, is really um, taking quite well to the shady spot. It's a tricky area that I've got it in because in summer it's in pretty much in full sun and then anything for this time of the year through to winter, it's in absolute full shade. And that is a really difficult thing to plant. It's like a courtyard, it? isn't yeah. it? So, you know, sometimes, and you, obviously this sort of position, I can't have plants in pots. It's garden beds, so uh, I, I need something that can cope with both those conditions. But, um, yeah, so it is doing very well in the shade. Um, it's flowering now. But, uh, I mean, the Herbertia ones, I mean, Chloe, we know the, the snake vine, the Herbertia scandens, which has got those beautiful glossy green leaves. Yeah. That's a sort of a, a climber scrambler. I yeah, it'll, if there's something to climb up, you'll climb up it, but otherwise it just goes along the ground. Yeah, it's lovely on the ground. It's, yeah, it's it is. Not, uh, not a voracious climber, no. is it? It's quite, no. a, quite a gentle climber, so it's not going to pull down your pergola or anything like that. Unlike Hartenbergia. Exactly, yeah. which will pull down a whole fence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. or Canadia, or yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, any any of those. Um, the pandarias, the wonga vines, mm. they're all quite voracious. But uh, yeah, so I didn't realise the herbushes. They've also got, there's a tree. Um, you see it? Yeah, I didn't Herb- know that Herbertia hexandra. So Where does it grow? New South Wales. Right. Yeah, so sort of the northern New South Wales coast to just south of the Queensland border. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realise that until I was researching, but yeah, tree to six metres. So it really covers all bases. They really do. Yeah, so that's. Um, and they're another one, I think, where you could say it's a very clean yellow. It is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The I boomer said, is a particularly larger flower too. Yes, it's a lovely clean yellow because I think some yellows in the garden can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. And if you can get a really clean yellow, then you, I mean yellow and purple together, for example, yeah. are absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I like about this particular one is it 
it's kind of it's a ground hugger, but it um, creeps a bit higher every now and again. So it provides those little nooks and crannies for skinks and mm. and mm. probably rats and mice, but <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. But it is a, it's a wonderful habitat plant as well. It kind of looks a little bit like thyme, the herb, it does, but with yeah. shiny shiny green leaves, shiny and leaves, darker green. Yeah, so it's got a bit of wiriness about yeah. it. Yeah, and the bit dense. The thyme explains how small the leaves are. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, one that I've... And um, they do spit out flowers sort of throughout the year. Okay. Probably more so in springtime, but yeah. I've got the boomer at home and yeah. it's just every now and then you get a flower on it. But How much has that spread for you? It's pretty slow, but it's in it's in pretty... Um, Heavy it's soil? It's in clay soil. Yeah, yeah so, so, so it's mine in here as well. It's been in for two years and it's probably only... It'd be lucky if it's about 30 centimetres wide. So it's it's pretty slow, yeah. which is nice. You don't, you don't want things. You like I like fast growing plants, but it's nice when they don't turn into weeds as soon as you plant them. So yeah. it's it's that it's balance, isn't slow. it? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, some people, as you would know, come into the nursery and they're like, oh, I want something that grows really quickly. Anything that I mean, people say that with trees. Now a wattle will grow really yeah, quickly, usually, and it won't last really long. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can't have it both ways. No, and they—I mean, it's really interesting now because we're what 200 years old, and a lot of European plants and American, North American plants have come here uh, that live six and seven hundred years back there, but clearly are beginning to senesce here, and it's probably because they don't stop; they keep on growing yeah. right through the winters. So they're not going to live as long. Yeah, that's, that's true. Mm. Yeah. It, it makes a difference. And, of course, that's those trees that have rings, the rings are formed mm. by stopping in winter. Yeah. Yes. So trees behave quite differently here because they don't stop. Yes, yes, yes. Although, I mean, the deciduous trees do, but not our, not our that, native trees. No, and a lot of the deciduous trees don't decidue properly. They don't decidue properly. That's correct. Then, yeah, yeah, they're not yeah. stopped think, by uh, a foot of snow. Yeah. I think we just came up with a new word. <laughs> Look, so Sue um, from Bandura has has a raised garden bed with a pergola, which is uh, six feet by three feet. Uh, wants to know what vine to plant over the pergola. Is a kiwi vine going to be suitable? Kiwi vine kiwi is vine. very big. And a lot of work. You must have two. You must have a male and a female. If, if you, you want, want fruit. fruit. <laughs> Well, why on earth wouldn't you want fruit? Well, she might want it for ornamental purposes. Well, if it's ornamental, don't go for a kiwi vine. No. A grapevine might be nice. Yep. Ornamental grape. Yeah. And there's a really, is it Parthenocissus? Parthenocissus. Yeah. Virginia creeper. Virginia creeper, yep. yeah. And the thing with a Virginia creeper, and a very good idea to buy it right now because you get to see the colours. Yeah. They go the most beautiful colours. And, of course... Often, I think what you should have with a pergola is something that is deciduous because you want the winter sun, yep. but you don't want the summer sun. Look, I want anything on my pergola. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I just want something to grow over it. <laughs> I'm trying grapes. I, I know that I'm pretty sure I bore listeners with my meanderings about my grapevine over pergola, but one day I'll be sitting there. One day I'll, I'll, be, I'll ring up from under my pergola, yes. grapevine covered pergola. So you're having trouble growing something on yours? Uh, yes, yes, yes. But um, I troubleshooted it last week with, with Evan, so I think. Because um, yeah, the other. I mean, another, another thing to do is grow several. Like I would put because I love them. I would put a clematis through it. I was going to mm-hmm. say, yeah. yeah. And there are so many different clematis. Or Bellardiera. 
Yes, uh, yeah. the, uh, Mary. I've got a billardiera and the clematis growing together, oh, and they oh, just look fabulous. That. Yes, they would. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. I think the billardiera would be uh, strong enough to go up a pergola. Yes, yeah. the one I've got is. It's because um, uh, I've put it on. You just a, don't see them very often. Yeah, I've, I've got one growing. Uh, decided to train it with, I've got a couple of passion fruits and, and uh, training it along with them. And it hasn't really done a lot. I certainly Mine. wouldn't see it going up a pergola. Mine, it hasn't, I haven't got it on a pergola. I've got it on a great big, you know, metal thing. Yeah. And it doesn't think it's enough, so it's gone into the local tr- the tree next to it. Mm. What soils are you both talking well, about? I'm in veggie garden soil. Hot, yeah. No, it's, in, it's oh, in the okay. soil. Yeah. yeah. What mm. sort of soil is it? In, in my red soil. clay. Oh. Mm. And it's it's just it's very happy, mm. and it it flowers at unusual times. Like it flowers, you know, it'll flower late, and so it it'll be in flower when other things aren't. Mm. And the clematis is purple, and it's sort of an orange, and it's just fab. They're mm. fabulous together. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so I think, but yeah, of course, the other thing is, she could plant if she wants food. She could plant passion fruit. I mean, it's a very pretty vine. It won't last a long time. She'll and have to replant it. You'll never get rid of it. Well, no. It can get a bit never, ever plant a passion fruit that's grafted. Always. Well, I'm dealing with a grafted passion fruit never. root stock at the moment, and it's coming up through cracks in the concrete no, five metres away. never, ever, ever yeah. have a no. grafted passion yeah, no. fruit. It's the biggest we, mistake we on earth. Yeah, made that problem as well. We've got random passion fruits popping up all over the place. Yeah, mm. and weed, um, glyphosate doesn't kill it. It just keeps coming back. <laughs> Although the, the suckers are quite easy to pull up. So I, not I, in between no, concrete. In concrete no. <laughs> I cut down a winter flowering buddleia oh. because it was just too big and it was right and it's it was huge, you know. And in, in I'd prune it with a chainsaw every second year, and it would still be twenty foot high. So I thought, right, you're gone. Took it down, immediately painted glyphosate on mm. its trunk, and then came back a week later and gave it another go, and as it was starting to sprout, gave it another go, then forgot about it. I have now got the most beautiful little shrub. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Uh, Who would have guessed? <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> it's extraordinary. So it, and it is really nice. So I've decided it can stay, mm. yeah. but it's coming out yeah. You know, every year. But it's on this huge trunk, Quite which you incredible. can't see. And I, I gave it so much class. And I don't use Roundup very much. Yeah. I, I don't like using mm, it. Mm. But every now and again, you get desperate. But I do think with passion fruit, it is absolutely essential not to go for the grafted ones because that banana passion fruit they graft onto is just yeah. vicious. Voracious, mm. yeah. There's a beautiful one in the Dandenongs, you know, which has pink flowers. It's gone it's gone native. <laughs> it's um, you, driving up the back of the Dandenongs. You see it growing in late winter, and it has beautiful pink flowers. Mm. Is it a garden escape? It must be. Oh right. It's not a native. Well, the, the there native is a native one. I've got fruit, that in my gravilla. And it's um, it's a food plant for a butterfly as well. So oh, is it? Oh, good. yeah. Oh, Blanking on the butterfly. Subtropical? No, no. no. Um, it, it's I bought it at Karanga. Oh, you might. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a little bit weedy at the zoo, but it's easy to pull. It's easy to clear out. It, it you know it climbs around. It, mm-hmm. You know everything. I've got it up through my. It. I've got a couple of huge grevilleas, and I've got got it going through my grevillea. Yeah. And because it's such a you know it's a passion fruit type leaf. Yep. Beautiful flower. So it looks very nice. Oh, gorgeous. In, in the grevillea. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think with Sue, what she was um, 
yeah, wondering about the uh, the vine. I think it depends on how much work she wants yeah. to put into it. If you want to, if you want something uh, quite hardy and voracious that's going to take over, but it's going to take a bit more pruning, you, you could look at a, a, one of the Wonga vines, a Pandaria um, jasminoides or Pandaria pandorana. Um, which will cover a pergola very quickly, but uh, I think the to be import- very sturdy. I think the important thing is to think about, I would plant something that loses its leaves fairly early in the autumn, which the Virginia creeper will do, because really if you want, you want that winter sun, mm. so that would be yeah. one of my criteria. I wouldn't plant a, a, a kiwi fruit unless you actually want, want kiwis, fruit, because... Yeah. They're hard work and you must prune them. They do have beautiful flowers, but they, they do need to be pruned. And it helps with them not getting out of control too if you, if you do get one of the deciduous varieties because a climber grows up something somewhere that's not easily accessible, up, you know, your roof or your pergola, and it's, you know, it's not easy for you to, to control it by giving it a tip prune when you walk past. Mm. So, mm. Well, it's one of the nice things about clematis, you know, you, yeah. you just chop them down. <laughs> and, and put glyphosate on them. Never, never. <laughs> if you're in Virginia's garden, well, there's quite a few, and there's some beautiful New Zealand clematis, absolutely lovely. I, I noticed. Are they the ones that have the huge flowers? Is that the New Zealand varieties? No, no, the huge flowers are the ones that have been bred right. in, in England, particularly. But no, the New Zealand ones tend to be white, and they're very, very, very pretty. Mm, um, I noticed that Frogmores has got a few of them for sale mm. and they're lovely and and they do they do get used as breeding stock because you know that's the thing with clematis the reason there's so many is because you know people have been breeding them for years because yeah. their flowers are so lovely but you know last time i was in england i sort of walked into a hardware shop that had some flowers for sale and they had clematis for sale for two pounds and here you're expected to pay 40 mm. i'm not paying 40 dollars for a, a plant mm. i won't i don't like paying 40 dollars for a tree <laughs> you know it's just ridiculous i don't no, know i'm not. teslas i have to give it to them they do sell clematis cheaper come the spring than other places but i just think it's ridiculous although, two dollars two pounds they cost yeah you. although i often think that plants are too cheap for the amount of work that goes into especially if they're a cultivar into breeding them and growing them on and growing them on there's a lot of work that goes into it and then we because you can buy them at markets and and garage sales and whatnot there's an expectation that we should be able to buy them really cheap but i I think think the difference between two pounds which is three dollars fifty and forty dollars is rather enormous and there's no other climber in any of our nurseries at that sort of price so why do you think that is? Just because uh, it's a wanted plant? Uh, no, I think people... Because one of the things with clematis, people don't know how to plant them. And in fact, if you do decide to get a clematis, always plant a clematis deeper than, the, than it is in the pot. You always plant a clematis mm-hmm. considerably yep. deeper. It's just, And the other thing with a clematis, it wants a cool root run. So if you plant it, if you say you've got a pergola and one side's shady and the other side sunny we'll plant the clematis on the sh- on the shady side mm-hmm. i and mulch around the roots mulch it i put sometimes put rocks around them yeah, to keep okay. them cool yeah uh, and once they're up then they're away and you're fine and do they like a looser soil a loamier soil or i don't think so okay so they're fine I mean, in a heavier they're, clay they're in my heavy soil yep. i've got quite a few of them i think the real thing with them is to keep the root run cool yeah so 
and I mean, you know, my garden AB, it's just it's got so many plants mm. in it. Mm. So the root run is cool automatically yeah. because the, the shading, the it natural is shaded by whatever. Yeah, natural mulch, mm. basically. Yes, um, mm. I, I think that's important. The other one is to plant it more deeply. Mm. 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 Well, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio are Virginia Hayward and Chloe Foster. We're going through till 9.15 this morning, so if you'd like to ring in with a garden question or a comment, uh, give us a call on 94190155. And we have had a caller who uh, off-air who would like to alert people to check their citrus for gall wasps uh, not just the lemons and limes, uh, as he's discovered uh, gall wasp on his uh, Lane Washington naval orange tree. So, um, and of course, people are planting finger limes more and more, and that is the natural home for the gall wasp. Is it really? Mm. I did not know that. I didn't know that either. Mm. And you learn something new every day. <laughs> <laughs> and gall wasp. <clears throat> I, I mean, I know it is a disaster, but it is a native pest which means it's not all pest. Mm. It has a role in the environment. Um, That's interesting, Virginia, because we've got a very mature lemon tree and it's uh, got a reasonable amount of gall wasp on it, but I've also got quite a few uh, native limes, the finger limes, and nary a gall wasp inside. They might be a little bit more resistant. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. They are the cultivars. Mm. Uh, and I've got uh, one of them. I did have two. What's your favourite fruit? Like, what's your favourite cultivar? Do you have one that fruits better than others? Uh, what have we? I've got in the citrus gems. Yeah. And for me, they all seem to fruit pretty well, um, and uh, which is something I love. And but the thing is, I think people think that they grow quite tall and that they're not suitable being a subtropical plant that they're not suitable for down here but I found ours do extremely well mm. um, I'm training one as a standard outside the glass house which um, looks terrific it's kind of weird because they've got that quite wiry kind yeah. of random growth and uh, yeah training it as a standard I'm not sure it's appreciative but uh, <laughs> So what do you do about your gall wasp? Do you drill into them? I don't do anything, I'm afraid, Virginia. I know I know, I should, but our lemon tree is huge, and it's been a project that's just been put off and put off and put off. But now's and, the time. Um, if you yeah. Drill, yeah so if you drill into them so that the the galls die. Two, was it two? So the end of winter, August, is the best time to prune the galls out before they emerge before from they the emerge. galls that they've yeah. made. So two Augusts ago, I did that to our um, the Maya lemon tree at Mum and Dad's place. You drilled in. Didn't drill in. I pruned. I pruned it so there was literally there was nothing, nothing left. left. Mm. It was the tree. It was only. It wasn't huge. So it was probably about two and a half meters by you know two and a half meters or something. And I, there was no there was no leaves left on it, and the, there was, you know, a stump about a metre high with some, you know, thicker branches left on it. Mum and Dad couldn't believe what I'd done. <laughs> <laughs> but it came back, and we didn't get any fruit on it last year, but we've got, there's three lemons on it now that are about to ripen up, and there's no gall on it, because it just had so much gall that we just had to start again. So pruned it back really, really hard. And it's grown back. There's beautiful, um, you know, new leafy growth on it, and it's not, it's not sticky. It's not. It needed a good prune anyway. And now that we've, you know, got back to basics, we can just take, you know, one gall off, 
at a time now as it as it comes up instead of having the whole tree covered. We'll just problem do it as it comes. The problem is there's a lot of ABs around in this world who mm. don't do anything mm. with their... I mean, I've got... When everyone has a lemon tree in their backyard. Absolutely, I, especially in the burbs. Yeah. We're obviously in much closer proximity than mm. I am in the bush where I don't have neighbours very close at all. Well, see, I've got fifteen lemon trees mm. and two grapefruit. You never get you're never gonna get rid of it. But I haven't got it. You haven't got it. I haven't got any gore. But radio silence <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I feel and I don't think other people in the valley do. I mean there's a lot of orchards in the valley. There was at one stage the largest lemon orchard in the southern hemisphere in the valley. I think everything in the valley is turning to strawberries, and I think it's partly turned to strawberries. I hate strawberries. What? So you strawberries think are totally dependent on black plastic, and I can't stand uh, them. Black plastic and chemicals. Mm. I hate them. Well, they are when they're uh, production strawberries. Mm. Black plastic. No, not at home. And, of course, they, they put the black plastic down, mm. and then they pump it full of chemicals, mm. and then they plant their strawberries. Mm. Yuck. But anyway, that the largest southern hem- in the southern hemisphere, which has now partly gone to strawberries, and quite a few of the vineyards have gone to strawberries. The whole world is turning into strawberries. <laughs> but but so no galls. I, ha- I haven't seen any galls. No, I've got no galls on mine. Incredible, because I've seen your lemon. But um, I, we are very the in the Yarra Valley. They're very worried about fruit fly. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that recently. And they're very worried about people like me that have dead lemons on the ground which means the fruit fly are encouraged Mm. I haven't seen any fruit fly but then I'm not very conversant with a fruit fly (laughs) I've never seen one I just sort of know that you avoid it and don't Mm. take fruit into state that's right yeah yeah Yeah, no I think they are no you we can do it they can't do it that's right yeah fruit can go north but not come south now, one of the things I asked you both earlier in the week was to uh, bring in a favourite gardening book or two. So That was a really hard question. Hard, yeah. yeah. What have you come my up with? My favourite gardening books, because I'm a bit of a plant nerd botanist, yeah. most of my favourite gardening books are field guides. Mm-hmm. I love so handy, aren't they? Yeah, they're so yeah. handy. Yeah. It's a very practical thing. But I love you know, going to an, a, an area, like a camping trip or something, and taking the field guide or finding the field guide for that area yeah in there so because you just then you know exactly what you're looking at and it's so easy to find that's you know you can get down to subspecies so i bought in today i bought in the field guide to the grand pins flora the Mm. roger elliott's one Mm -hmm. which um if he's listening i'd really like him to update it (laughs) (laughs) i think he's in sicily isn't he oh yeah i think he is oh surely i think he'd be listening in he'd be listening in and the other one, um, I went to a glorious property in WA last year called High Valley Farm, mm-hmm. and they've got 1,000 acres of untouched Kwangan flora, about two hours north of Perth. How fabulous! And it's never it's never been burnt since they've been in there since the 60s, mm-hmm. and. They're the very um, environmentally minded. These farmers, they're just glorious people, and they they have. People from Perth Zoo and um, from Kings Park do a lot of flora and fauna surveys there, mm. and they've had a field guide made for that area. And it's just, it's such a nice, it's just such a beautiful book, and it is so comprehensive. And it's, well, I just love flipping through it. It's just one of my favourites. Mm. It's nothing special, 
Yes, so I suppose it is. You, when you went there, you saw a lot of uh, plants in the wild that you'd only ever seen in cultivation. Yes, yep. yes. Uh, you've opened at Hibertia, right? I've opened at Hibertia, <laughs> yeah, and there's one, two, three, four, five species of Hibertia. Okay, on what, this is, property. what are some of them? Hibertia crassifolia. Yep. Luca crossa. Mm-hmm. Oh, more, more. Subvaginata, Propinqua. Oh. I haven't even heard some of these yeah. species. It's a really beautiful book. If that? I'm sure somebody could find it online if they were looking. Field Guide. Field Guide to High Valley Farm. And Valley is spelt V-A-L-L-E. Correct. High H-I, High Valley Farm. Yeah. It's a gorgeous book. It is beautiful. The photos are stunning. Yeah, the photos are beautiful. And they've got, uh, there are, there are animals, fungi, at the back, invertebrate fauna, native reptiles, the birds that they've got. Frogs. Yeah, frogs. I love a frog. Oh, they've got the splendid fairy wren. Isn't mm. that the most beautiful, beautiful bird? little bird. Yeah, so this is a very comprehensive field guide. It's not just the flora, but the Grampians one is just the flora with uh, line drawings by Trevor Blake, I think. Yes, Trevor Blake did the line drawings as well, and I, it's a. Even though um, Roger hasn't updated it, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he probably it's should. It's very now. relevant. It's still a relevant book, and it um, w- went up to the the Grampians in September last year with the Hort team from the Cranbourne Gardens, and it was the book that we all had on us and that we all used for the whole weekend. So Roger wouldn't have needed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a walking book. Yes, he is a walking yeah, book. Yeah. Uh, and that looks like it would probably be out of print, though, so it's probably a, a find for bookshops, maybe. Yeah, or definitely. Or Amazon, yeah, yeah, eBay. And libraries. That's what libraries are for. Yes. Yes, you can always lose it. <laughs> no. AB, that is terrible. We're live on air. You can't say that. <laughs> but yeah, so no, field guides are. I love field guides. Yeah. They're just, they're wonderful. And the people that put them together are usually locals and they're so passionate about where they live and yeah. the flora that they live in. And yeah, they're just fantastic little books. And, and the trick is if you're going somewhere, to hop online and get the field guide for that area yes. a month before you go yes. so that you can familiarise yourself with a few of the plants and, and uh, yeah, put it in your backpack, mm. take it everywhere with you. Well, mm. my book's very, very different. Good. One of the ones I brought is The Ornamental Kitchen Garden. That is quite different. <laughs> by Jeff Hamilton. I remember watching him in the 80s on BBC television and just being so inspired because what he did was he planted... Now, given that, except for rich people, you tend to have small gardens in England, and he would plant vegetables all through the garden and make sure they were ornamental. Mm. And so there would be food. And, it, you know, this is the 80s. I mean, people didn't particularly grow food yep. in, mm. in that way in the 80s. And I was just so inspired and I still sometimes read this book. Again, this is another one you'd only ever find in a library. It's called The Ornamental Kitchen Garden by Jeff Hamilton, who tragically died very young. He was just absolutely wonderful. And then one of the other ones I brought in was The Gardens of Russell Page, Mm. who wrote a book called The Education of a Gardener. And I think Russell Page is one of those totally underrated, brilliant garden designers. Mm. He it was English. Most of his work was done overseas. He did a lot in Italy, a lot in the Americas. He's just a superb, superb uh, garden designer. Mm-hmm. And 
as I say, it tends to be underrated. So I th- anybody who's interested in either reading his book, The Education of a Gardener, or asking the library for the gardens of Russell Page, mm. and, which is you know, just full of absolutely beautiful, beautiful... Inspiring photos. Mm. And when, when Sue and I... Um, Sue and I had dinner together on Friday night and, we, and I was saying, oh, A.B. wants us to... And <laughs> Sue said, oh, you should take her book in. I said, I know, I thought of that. I thought of that too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. But because I figured, no, that was too crawly, I couldn't That's do it. I'm not shouting your breakfast now. <laughs> <laughs> it's all over. So instead, I bought the latest book I've got, which is, has been out for a while. It's just me who has only got it recently, mm. which is Connected by Philip Johnson. Mm. It has got... Also, some absolutely stunning photos in it. Yeah, mm. there's some very absolutely inspiring fabulous images. There. images. Mm. It, it's a very well-designed book, which is why your book is so good. It's a beautifully designed book. Well, yeah, well presented. And I think uh, we can learn so much about design from inspirational books uh, like that. But I brought in one that's a very uh, practical book for for designers. This is uh, it's Phil Dudman's. Book. So it's an ABC book and it's called Down to Earth Garden Design, How to Design and Build Your Dream Garden. And uh, it's broken up into three parts. So we've got uh, part one, which is designing your garden step by step. And he talks about how to get inspired, what particular style that you like and what you want and need from the garden. And one of the things which I really like in it, he shows you how to draw like a pro. So we often think that, oh, I can't design my garden because, you know, I've got to be able to draw trees. But really, when you look at a garden designer's plan, it's a whole lot of squiggly lines Mm. and uh, And random circles circles with dots in the middle. So it's actually quite easy to draw like a pro once, once you get the symbols. And so Phil gives you examples of all the symbols. Um, he teaches you how to draw to scale, um, to measure your garden and a site analysis checklist. So that's in part one. In part two, he's got a section on ready-made garden designs. So this is for all those people who like um, uh, ready-made pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do the work yourself. But he's got, he talks about different shaped gardens. He's got designs for square gardens, rectangle gardens, L-shaped gardens and weird gardens. And he gives... Uh, you know, between two and four uh, design templates, I suppose, for each size garden. And um, so that I've found to be terrific. So he, he's actually drawn up the designs and then he's provided photographic uh, examples as well. And then the last part is uh, basically building your garden step by step. So he talks about construction basics, installing drainage, retaining walls, steps and ponds, um, how to build arbours and compost bins and everything is uh, its a pictorial guide so it's very easy to follow. Um, and he talks about establishing new lawn and basically and, and how to plant. So there's a lot in there but it's, it's really easy to to understand um, and I think the, the photos that he uses um, like in some instances he's got a photo and then he's uh, of a garden and then he's drawn an arbor over the top of it so you can get a sense of what that arbor mm. is going to look like in in your particular garden so uh, that's down to earth garden designed by Phil Dudman so um, certainly something I would recommend now Where, whereabouts is he based He's in, I think he's northern New South Wales. I always get confused if he's New South Wales or Queensland. But, yeah, I think he's northern New South Wales. But, of course, I mean, the design 
basics yes, are the same. relevant no Absolutely. matter where you are. Yes, but um, we've got uh, time for one more caller, and uh, we'll go to Jill in East Melbourne. Hi, Jill. Hi. Um, I'm in the Herb Society, and I'm going to do a talk at St Paul's Frankston at the Garden Club at 12.30 on Tuesday. Lovely. And I'm taking some unusual herbs, which include a coffee plant and a tea plant, because people don't realise they're herbs. And uh, I'm taking my indigenous collection, which is all in pots. Well, which must you be know, growing by now, because you've been collecting indigenous for a while, haven't you, Jill? Yes. Well, I've got four beautiful salt bushes, all in terracotta pots, which look lovely because, you know, the opposite uh, colour spectrum and everything else. So they look gorgeous. And um, warrigal greens and um, chocolate lily and... Um, I have to take a cutting of the native lime because I'm not going to pull it out of the ground. <laughs> so whereabouts are you going, Jill? Uh, St Paul's Church in Frankston. You know, come out of Davies Street or um, just up from the... It's often a PM Highway. Instead of going towards Oliver's Hill, you go left up on the hill is St Paul's Anglican Church, and that's where the talk is. I'm sure... I don't know the exact address, but very easy to find. I'm sure it'll be in, in the A to Z, not the A to Z, yes, in the Melways. Yes, yes. Anyway, um, I'll do a talk for about an hour and take, you know, quite a few cuttings of, of other things, you know, um, pelagoniums and whatnot that I need to prune, but other people will find as treasures to plant. Absolutely. That mm. sounds terrific, Jill. Okay. So I, I did one at Mural Bark a month ago, same talk. Yep. And uh, now I've done an article about the Indigenous to be in the Herb Age next issue, which will be the July-August issue, I think, or yep. August-September issue. And um, I'll just say our website, which is herbsocietyvic.org.au. Fantastic. And my phone number, my mobile number's on that website if people need to have pro you know, things about herbs. Yep. And we meet at the first Thursday at Burnley in Room 10, every month wonderful all right jill well i better let you go because yes, we've I got to wrap up go. thank you so much have a lovely mother's day bye. you do bye for now yes that um is all the time that we have for this morning i'd like to thank louise and carol for womaning the phones uh, thanks to virginia and chloe for sharing your horticultural knowledge again and thanks to you the listeners for tuning into the 3cr gardening show my name is ab bishop and we'll be here again at the same time next week so see you then You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.